welcome back to this episode of When Push Comes to Shove. Today we have the gorgeous Alexis here who is going to be talking about her IVF journey and her pregnancies and birth. And you are a very talented photographer, which we will talk about later. So hi, Alexis, welcome. And would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and about your IVF journey? Well, my name is Alexis Hamilton. I am a photographer. I kind of do lots of different types of photography, but I currently am working on sort of some birth related stuff. But I think I'm also here in a great deal to talk about my IVF journey because I am 42. I've got uh, two children, a three year old and a five month old. I'm just turning six months and um, they're both IVF pregnancies. I had quite a lot of rounds of IVF. So I've been in a lot of groups not to try and like show off any sort of badge. I, I can just tell sometimes I chat to them that I had eight full, no, seven full rounds and one frozen. And I sometimes get people going, ooh. <laughs> so I think I spanned quite a lot of years. So it kind of started when I was maybe 30, 34. And I didn't have my first baby till I was 39. And then I had just obviously recently had my second baby at 42. So there's, there's been quite a lot going on in the, I, in the IVF journey, you know, which is never anything I intended. Um, to, to become a big part of my life but it does um naturally and then I got quite interested going through the two births um the pregnancies obviously I really enjoyed the pregnancies actually but and the births weren't stereotypically um traumatic as such the two c-sections but they made me very interested in the culture of birth mm. it became kind of organically grew into something that you know in various groups that I'm in and in various photography that I've done it sort of evolved into me being quite productive, proactively interested in how we view and how in, women in, um, interact with the experience and how much agency they really feel that they have over their bodies during it has become really fascinating to me because I think it's quite complicated. Not as simple, you know, you, I think you, there's a lot of, um, well, I feel very laid down by, weighed down by a lot of stereotypes sometimes when you, when you get pregnant, you know, how old would you be? How happy are you going to be? How is your birth going to be? And then how is motherhood going to be? And maybe it's just me, but it feels like a lot of that is there's very assumed things that go all the way along with it, starting from IVF and all the way through, you know, that sometimes you start to get at this day and age a little bit tired of, maybe. <laughs> so the IVF journey, so I, you know, obviously wanted children. I viciously pursued IVF, but I was never one of those overly motherly people, if you know what I mean. Like I met my husband at like 32, 33. I did want to have children, but we were quite relaxed. I knew, I knew about my age, you know, that was, I wasn't naive, but I've never been overly you know, obsessed with motherhood or marriage, you know, within a year, I realised it's not really happening. And I've never been pregnant in the, in the past. You know, sometimes you could have had a bit of an accident and various whatever reasons you could know that you get pregnant. And I was thinking, I've never been actually pregnant. So pretty quickly, I went to the doctors after about eight months and I was to kind of take a little bit of a white line. So I've been trying for two years because, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I was right to because really between 33 and 35, 36, I was very grateful to the NHS and it's wonderful, but the whole thing took an exceptionally long time. Things got delayed for various reasons, tests, probably quite necessary things, but really, if you think about it, basically four or five years. And I got, I was lucky enough to get two rounds, which we all know is a terrible postcode lottery. And sometimes get nothing now, um, but you're, you know, obviously it's the guidelines you meant to have three. So that is all a bit of a nightmare in this country. I got two and I left, it was a slightly different system when I did it. So I left after two transfers with no pregnancy, but some frozen embryos. And then I decided to collect some more of my own before I transferred, because I was very aware of my age. I collected, spent so it's about 10 grand around. It's completely insane. Um, collected some more. I literally got one for that. So at this point I had about five. And then I went private for the first time to do a full round. And that was my, I was a lucky first time with that. And I, and I had uh, my daughter Ripley. 
So at 39, I had a fresh round. I had all my other frozen ones because I was being a bit of a squirrel. At that kind of age, you could go through a pregnancy, have the baby, and actually not have any more time to collect any more eggs because there's quite a drop-off around 39, 40. Not for everybody, but during that pregnancy, I was 39. And so I was very aware that I was an older mum. I didn't know anything about birth and things like that other than my sister who luckily had followed a similar timeline to me albeit not IVF so she had both her babies at 39 and 42 as well and she's my older sister four years older so I was very aware of certain things that there's gonna be a lot of pressure for interventions Mm -hmm. I was very aware that she went over they call it over to 42 weeks I was very aware she's very evidence-based like me so just to, to say I'm you know, I'm really into, I like doctors. I'm not one of these people that maybe is a little bit sceptical about certain things or is going to maybe be a wanting to alternative stuff. Not that I have a problem with that, but that's not really me. I quite idolise doctors. I like evidence. I like research. I very much do what I'm told generally in that sense because I like their method, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I'd already experienced my sister having to push back a lot as she was going over to um, and having to hear about her ideas of what is a sweep? Do we want a sweep? Does it do anything? are we going to have a stillbirth um do we need to have an induction what does an induction mean and sometimes it's you know almost presented to you like it's just a little thing you know we'll just do this little thing and nothing's really going to happen and if it doesn't really work it doesn't really matter and then luckily through sam my sister i knew that that's not really the case that it's kind of like maybe once you get on this little treadmill you can't get off if you know what i mean so maybe a sweep might break your waters and then you've only got 24 hours to suddenly decide what you're going to do and then there's this thing called a hormone drip and oh that actually really hurts so maybe I might need an epidural now that I didn't so you know what I mean like if you don't know any of that I don't think the cascade of intervention so um my sister had ended up with a c-section she wasn't particularly harrowed about her c-section she was she wasn't she was yeah you know she wasn't overly positive wasn't negative about it but she went to 42 42 plus five I think so something really epic and you know, um, she can be, she can have anxiety about things. She's not like one of the people who doesn't, but I think she just read a lot of the stuff and she pushed on through for a bit longer, but it didn't pan out. So I got to, um, from 38 weeks, basically, they were on me like, you know. And the IVF classes are high. IVF, so my factors are 39. I mean, I probably wasn't as overweight. I'm always carrying a couple of extra stone. So by the time I get to the second pregnancy, I was I was carrying a bit like significant timber that maybe, the first one I was like a little bit, so I still wasn't quite fat enough to be, but it was noted. I was 39, right on the edge. It was IVF. And then as we saw me going over, so it's all very, the only thing I would say, if I went to a hypnobirthing and I did reading, I went to hypnobirthing course. Maybe it's my fault that I maybe didn't get enough into it. I wish I'd maybe just got a doula for the first one. I mean, I'm not into regrets, but I think that might have been, I think sometimes what you feel is you think, oh, I'll just try that with the first one, see what it's like. And that's the only thing I'd go in a time machine back to myself and say and go, no, nah, because the first one's going to set a lot about the second one. And that's what I don't think I knew. Not to put pressure on people, but you know what I mean? It's, it's not quite as simple as maybe I'll just try this on this time and then I'll start with a clean slate the next time. It maybe isn't quite the way it works. So, but I held out and I did start spontaneous labour at um, 42 weeks. I've got some lovely portraits, actually. I one that they'd be jumping around in the garden doing self-portraits, all happy. Like, it started, I've, I think I did have two sweeps. I decided, though, you know, it's worth a go, maybe. But unfortunately, it kind of descended a bit quickly. So within the first, like, yeah, six hours, mobilising, dancing around, having a great time. And I think the, the shorter version of it is, I'm, I'm not sure if I maybe wasn't good at coping with the pain or whether it was a very unproductive labour. Possibly, maybe you could debate. I possibly couldn't have, maybe shouldn't have had the sweeps, but it's the thing with sweeps. You have no idea if they do anything anyway. No one does. So you never know. So it's easy for me to say, maybe I shouldn't have had the sweeps. But 
I kind of laboured at home for about seven hours, went in the bath for about four hours, went in twice in a cab, you know, which was quite a stressful part of it. We don't have a car, but even just the transferring is tricky, which again, why maybe why I think a doula at home might have been better because there's a lot of debating. You know, you don't want to go in too early, and I knew that, but then you, I may not have even wanted a lot of internals, but how do I know what's going on? And that was, so basically the point, the second time I went in was the point, so I'd gone in the first time and obviously I was one centimetre, I'd gone another few hours, I was at home, I was projectile vomiting, not to scare anyone, it wasn't painful or anything, that, the actual vomiting, but um, it was an odd one, like my sister never had that, I was just like, you know, <laughs> like something out like the exorcist, so I was like, I think I'm going back again, and I wasn't coping, I wasn't panicking, as in, like, help me, help me, but I was saying to my husband, I'm not managing this pain at all, I'm not coping with it, if you know, I, mean, I know I'm not, I'm not breathing correctly, I'm making it worse, I was sort of trying to move and do certain things that I vaguely remembered, but I don't think I was in any way centering. I wasn't in any way in control of it. So that's definitely an element. I went back in. I had managed to get into the birth centre, even though I was IVF and 39. They looked at me a bit like, you're going to be, this is going to be great. You're going to be, have a look, one centimetre. So she was like, looked at me, was great. Like, oh dear, poor thing, kind of thing. Gave me some, the thing that I thought I wouldn't have, which is, is it dimorphine? No. What is the one... Yeah, I think it's it. The one that you think you probably won't have if you're later on because it would transfer to the baby and make them sleepy. But, you know, it's a pain relief I never thought I'd have. But I was so early mm. that she was like, you might as well have this. And then I spent a few hours standing in a shower, but I swear it didn't even touch her sides. Like my husband had a nap. But I was just, then I went up to lay to, you know, um, consultant led. I just, I was just walking up there, throwing up. Mm. Got up there. I'd had a bit of gas in air. I mean, sometimes I wonder whether I should have had more gas in air. But I think I was just, I was, I was trying to negotiate at that point. I was trying to advocate for myself saying, I want to try and get a birth pool. Is there one, knowing the problem, is there one available? There's a woman in it. You know, do you think, how do you know how long? Are we? And then a midwife actually turned to me and this isn't one of those um, bad moments, but she was just like, you're not getting in a pool. <laughs> like, but she did, I didn't, this, that instance isn't for me one of those, because I was, I'm the kind of person that could, maybe that would be bad for somebody, but I could have said to her, get lost. But I looked at her and I, I knew what she meant. I meant, I was coping actually. And I was, so all these choices made by me, I then picked a, a epidural and then I had a very, very long, you know, what, what often happens is that 12 hours dilating one centimetre an hour all the way to nine centimetres, but constantly is the baby a bit in distress. And I, I don't mean to be light about that, but, you know, I'd watched enough one born every minute that the, the consultants come in quite, I don't know, I was to put it quite arsey, basically, quite very eager to take you down for a C-section. You're kind of going, well, you've shifted me over a hundred times and then it's been okay. okay. So you're just going to shift me over again. And they look at you a bit like you're being a bit, you know, dismissive about your, your baby's health. But it's like, I'm in here covered in everything in the world, which is another theme of later, I think. And I find it odd when you're in a hospital and you're already surrounded by all of that technology. They still seem to be quite tense and quite, you know, eager and quite, it's almost a little bit hysterical, I feel, the atmosphere gets. And I'm like, well, I could be at home. If you know what I mean? Like, I'm here. But anyway, in the end, in theatre, I could have had forceps because um, I was nine centimetres, but there's still a little lip. I know all this quite well because I had to do a birth reflections for the next one. We try and do V-back. So we'd gone through all the notes uh, and then so they did a C-section. I bled really heavily, which often happens with C-section, 1.7 litres. I did actually feel absolutely diabolical in that C-section. I was not even interested in the baby, if I'm to be frank. I don't feel bad about that. I just felt like I was hanging on for dear life. And again, I didn't think I was dying, but I just felt diabolical your shape for me I felt it's not meant people my sister had two c-sections and the second one she loved so I'm not trying to put anyone off but I felt shaky and I and probably because of the blood loss so cold or actually in the heating broke in the hospital 
so that it was actually very cold. I had, I had a hot oh. tube of hair blowing my hair the entire time when it was, so it was just very surreal. Plus, she'd been in labour for a very long time. So Only days. So elective sections, yeah. my sister skipped into hers and, and felt really great about it. So, you know, I know they're all different, but yeah, I was exhausted exactly. So 1.7 litres, I thought they'd use this balloon to stop the bleeding because I said it, but there was all this debate about that later because I couldn't work out if what had gone on with this balloon, but apparently they never did use it. And then normal recovery in the sense of going back in with husband. Thank God husband stayed the whole time. You know, days I had to have two blood transfusions. I'm very pale anyway. So even after a few days, because my eye was so bad, the guy, the doctor, young consultant kept coming in. And this is after two transfusions, so even I was starting to be a bit better. But he was a bit like, um, the way you look. And I was, and then finally me and my husband had to be, no, 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 this is not, this is normal. Like, this is absolutely, we, first date, we argued about who was paler. We're the two palest people in the world. So, you know, but I was in for days. Ripley had a little funny thing. She'd, we're trying to do breastfeeding. Breastfeeding didn't work in the end, but this is when we're still persevering. And at one point she did a big sick and all these blood clots came out quite dramatically. I was all right, but I kind of walked off to try and find someone. And then they took her up to special care baby unit for a night. Again, I didn't think, I kind of thought she was fine. I was surprised that it turned out in the end, I think it did come out of my breast. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? But they observed her and actually I was quite secretly a little bit chuffed because I could have, I had about six hours sleep. <laughs> and I knew she was fine. She was like the healthiest baby being taken into there. You know, all these poor, poor women with these tiny babies and there's this fat, you know, seven pound something baby go over, you know, looking absolutely fine. So yeah, so she was in there for a night and then we had a couple more days to, you know, because it's long, much longer you stay in there for C-sections than you do now. I think I was in there for a week yeah. and this was all December uh, so it was all quite uh, cold and then came home this is early December the reason that's interesting is just that when you're kind of back home and you're bedded in and you're um, trying to get normal again uh, two weeks later unfortunately which I think this is actually really quite unusual um, on Christmas Eve so we we're just getting ready to go to like a, a meal actually like an out like in a pub meal the next day for Christmas day it was middle of the night I woke up with that kind of feeling, not to be too graphic, but sometimes like when you come in your periods and you haven't, you know, wet, you know, you sort of sit up and there's a bit of a hmm. So I was like, oh. uh, but then it carried on glugging, which I have to be honest, that was a bit of a little bit of a scary feeling. And I ran down the hall calling out to Michael. And unfortunately, I had a PPH, like a secondary PPH, that was probably not not massively far off what my original bleed was. Right. So it was like on the bathroom floor. I mean, again, that wasn't a moment where I think he was a lot more, my husband was a lot more, um, you know, it's obviously a person. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, even in that state when it was a bit, you know, there were towels and there was a lot of stuff and in the end I laid on the floor, it was all in my hair. I mean, it was pretty, it was brutal. The house was like the shining. The bed was absolutely ruined. But, um, but I think it was obviously much worse for the other person. You know, I've had things where people have hurt themselves. It's kind of worse for the person taking care of them. Because I just laid down, I did feel a bit lightheaded because I think I was a little bit in shock. But I knew that he'd, I could hear him calling 111. Then he was like, this is taking too long. And he'd call an ambulance. And, you know, they did take me in. And I did have another transfusion and stuff. But at no point did I feel then that I was, you know, in any mortal danger as such. A little bit maybe when I got into, into the hospital, I was on a bed in the I, I, in A&E and I was alone. And I didn't realise that he had the baby in some other area and I had not seen him yet. And they'd all walked off. And even though weirdly I knew I was safe there, I think that's in the moment I had a bit to freak out because it started again. Yeah. And you're just sort of alone on a bed going, hey, I'm almost like these people don't really like to shout out. So I think there was a moment where I did actually feel weirdly freaked out. But I think if there was any point, I'm joking about it, but that that would probably be the more of the trauma element to my first birth. As I kind of woke up on Christmas Day, I was naked from the waist down. We hadn't brought anything from my phone, any clothes. I personally had said to Michael, take the baby home. Because again, I'm sorry, I'm not when I breastfeeding, I hadn't been working for the two weeks. I'd been like pumping and had breast consultants coming, but I didn't have any 
uh, milk had never come in, maybe because of the first blood loss, I don't know. So anyway, I felt like he was better off taking the baby home and them actually having some normality there than having it next to, I felt so weak and awful. But this again, the thing I'm never sure about, I know women don't want to be separate from their babies, but people in all sorts of states just seem to be left to take care of babies. Or, you know, like sometimes after C-sections when women are just in such a mess and especially in the pandemic, anyway, you're on your own a lot of it. But, but so, yeah, that was the first, the first one. And I, you know, I'm telling that story to everyone and I've done a lot of photography based on that. That was probably the beginning of this project because one of my, I think sort of, I want to my best photos, even though it's a bit odd, is um, the towels. By the time I got home, everyone had cleaned up the house. My family had to go and help Michael clean up the house on Christmas day because he had a newborn and the whole house was, so then by the time I got home, it had all been cleared away. And actually I, I kind of wanted to see what it was. I don't know if that's just me, but I, I didn't want to just come back to a clean house. It all happened, but it was suddenly there's no evidence of it. So I dug it out of the bin, basically got all the towels out. So I wanted to see how much there was and what had happened. And then weirdly they were covered in glitter a bit because I'd done a bump shoot of myself just about a day before. I'd glittered my whole bump and did it like a disco ball is what I wanted as one of my shots. I've done other slightly more moody stuff of myself pregnant, but I wanted this fun shot of just, just my bump alone as a shape. So the town had got all glitter on it. So I did loads of shots of the, one of the main towns, like a bath sheet that's basically covered in like a big like war shack, but with, and I tipped more glitter on it basically and did loads of photos of it, which I, which I know at the time I was a bit embarrassed of. I was like, this is a bit nuts. But I actually think that really helped me process it mm. because I'd really looked at it and looked at everything that happened and had time to, I don't know, in my own way, think about it a lot. Mm. So the time I got him to take the baby out and just took loads of pictures of everything. But I think that helped me process it. So I didn't go into the second pregnancy, I don't think, feeling like um, that I was necessarily carrying a huge weight of trauma. But the IVF then ramped up a bit, I have to say as well. So at this point, I'm 40. I've got a load of frozen eggs, but I am very aware that I put two in each time. I think I have four frozen. That would be two rounds and I would be 41, basically, probably, and not be able to collect anymore. So we had a strange theory, I think, that seems a bit not unique, but I don't see it talked about a lot in the IVF forums. But I had frozen embryos and I just collected more at that age. I just thought, I'll try one round, see what comes out of me at 40. And they seem strangely productive. I was still getting what I always get, which is you collect about seven or eight, not to bore you with it. Only, you know, a few, only a couple, a few fertilized by the time they grow them. You always end up with two. And because I was always older, they always put two back. So in every single round, apart from the odd anomalous one, it's always been the same. So even at 40, I did three more rounds in a row because they just kept still being okay. And we'd sort of had the money, not like laying around, but everything we earned, we'd just quickly scrape together and, you know, put into that. We don't own a house or anything. You know what I mean? We were just spending all IVF. But unfortunately, that's when I got into stuff that I'd never had before, which is I started having mis- miscarriages because I was older. I had a miscarriage at nine weeks. One of the worst because you keep injecting drugs and you open because it's not growing right. So, But you can't quite... In the end, I did have medical management. So essentially, you do have an abortion. You have it sucked out. But there's a sort of horrible no man's land where you know that's what's going to happen. And I'm not one of these people that's at that point kind of going, oh, come on, because I'd read, I knew it was, I mean, I really knew it wasn't going to, so you're just sort of waiting for it to do its own thing. It's, it's just a very depressing number of weeks where you've got all the symptoms and you're injecting yourself with stuff and putting pessaries in and things. It's all just very involved. And then I had another very brief miscarriage again, like a miss, miss it, like literally a couple of weeks. And then I thought, right, well, obviously for me, my equality had gone down. There's no point to just start using the frozen. So I then finally used two of the frozen ones from 2015. So they're actually younger than Ripley, ironically, um, and got pregnant straight away um, with Bowie. So that was, so that was, I think that's sort of norm. Most of my IVF sort of 
done, even though I have three frozen still. So, um, but you know, there'll be no more collecting. You know, I knew I had some amazing sets of relief then, when I think anyway, because I just thought there's none more. But the most grueling part of IVF personally, and I think most IVF women would say this, is it's it's like a you know a three week process of growing the eggs and trying to see if they've grown, and then this whole process of fertilizing and 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 then you know trying to if there's anything to transfer there's another section that if you have them already frozen where you just go in for like a week basically you have a few injections that seems like a walk in the park compared to the full rounds and um oh one last thing is for my last couple of rounds of ivf i kept um bleeding quite early i think my progesterone was quite low no one really explains why so it ramped up and ramped up to the point when i was having these intramuscular injections daily and i think that one nearly got me too i was in tears with that a lot wasn't really that it necessarily physically hurt but it was every single day knowing you've got used to these little needles you're just like banging them in these little ones they really don't you can't feel it but this bigger one had to be done by michael so sort of logistics you're very reliant on what time someone's going to be in and then you have to get in this ridiculous position and then it's, it is actually that long not to scare anyone and has to go right into your muscle so you know and you have to keep doing it as well for um the first 12 weeks of the pregnancy wow that's a lot you're pregnant I then started to build up a bit of resentment that I wasn't even sure if I really needed these. And, and then a bit of it was like, this is the best bit. I was like, when these injections finally finish, right? Oh, and sorry, sorry this is a side note, but my other pregnancy, I've never really had a kind of a calm pregnancy in the sense of, unfortunately, during my other pregnancy, my stepdad, he unfortunately got um, cancer of the esophagus. And it, it kind of around the time when I was giving birth is unfortunately it all took a bit of a downturn. It had like a year of a surgery maybe a bit of hope and then it took that nosedive that it can do unfortunately with these things and he unfortunately passed away five months after Ripley was born so the first few months of her life I was spending going every other day on the train just me and her which actually weirdly it's very nice to have a baby to just with you doing all of that kind of thing ironically I'd say because it gives you that kind of other thing to focus on but you know we've just gone to a hospice every day for so uh, sorry, the reason that's relevant is I get to the next pregnancy and I go after these 12 weeks when these injections are done I'm going to relax and have a normal pregnancy and then we had lockdown Did <laughs> <laughs> you almost in the day like i had basically a week and uh, then there went, there's this pandemic you're like oh uh. it's just like i'm just never de- i'm not destined to have a boring pregnancy you know what i mean that's what's not going to happen so just let it go it's it's not going to be a thing and just move on and um yeah, I mean, in a way, the pandemic thing, I'm, I don't know if you've had anyone talking about that. And I think we, ha- we had a brief chat about it earlier. The, the frustrating thing about the, the pandemic element is obviously it removed uh, all of your support network have during a pregnancy. And I'd had a C-section. And so I was looking at a VBAC. And again, luckily, my sister had, had, had been trying to have a VBAC. So again, fortunately, I was, I was well versed in some of the initial things I would need to discuss with them. Unfortunately, because of my age... I was not going to be allowed in a birth centre. So then I needed to negotiate with them or talk to them. And I was going to have a doula this time. And I did get a doula, even though there were two doulas that were joining, um, covering it jointly. Unfortunately, they never got to the birth. <laughs> but, you know, they were a really interesting bit of support leading up. And I because I wanted to try water. I knew I basically hadn't coped very well with the pain. I don't know if that was to do with the position of the baby or just my reaction to pain or because it was my first time. I think there's something to be said for the first time you experience labour pains that it could possibly be something that would you know unnerve you like hitting cold water falling into a river if you know what i mean like possibly oh, the next time I'm like, yeah and you, you're not really sure what's shot to the system yeah but i was very aware that if i wanted to have a v-back 
you know, my thoughts, whatever, want to have a VBAC, it doesn't take very much Googling to realise that you want to try and have less intervention because the minute you get into any intervention, you know, if you want an induction or anything, it's you have a higher risk of things like scar rupture, which they're, they're obsessed with, even though I can get into that. It's really not a very big risk at all. But, um, you know, you, so you know yourself, I want to try and do a natural, as natural as possible labour, not because I'm a hippie, not that there's anything wrong with that, but because it's literally clinically seems to be the sensible thing to do to try and achieve a successful VBAC. So you start in these conversations with people. I was at UCLH originally, where I had my first baby, and they're lovely. And I did the birth reflections. I had quite a helpful woman that was um, maybe going to let me in the birth centre. But then I got more and more married to the idea of a, a home birth, not because I was like still going to stay at home no matter what. I was very aware of my risk factor. So at this point, I'm 42. I'm more overweight. I'm IVF. I'm a VBAC. And I had a really big bleed. So on paper, I am. I mean, I had a friend that was a doctor and he was like, you literally make me feel tense you know talking about it and I was like but the point is I'm not trying to have a home birth like a crazy person but what I wanted to do personally to just for me I didn't want to be the person that was saying I wasn't gonna if you know what I mean I wanted to put everything in place if by some freak occurrence I went into labor at 38 weeks and it was progressing really nicely mm-hmm. and nothing was you know it just appeared to, I would be really heartbroken if I thought oh but I have to get in a cab now and go into this clinic, you know, this like consultant-led ward, because I've decided, because I didn't believe that there was any chance that could happen. Now the reality was, it went exactly the way you think. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I just, I was just trying to be very frank with them. I was saying I want to be in a position where I'm not the one blocking this. But it's, it's these conversations are so incredibly stressful. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this, or if it's just me. But the conversations with consultants. And even some of the midwives, not to blame them, but they've got, they've got criteria. And it's all very conflicting too, if you know what I mean. So, you know, as I said, I really like doctors. I get quite G'd up. I basically want, I'm a bit Lisa Simpson. I want a doctor to tell me, well done. You know, you're agreeing with the right stuff and you've done your research and we're all like best friends. That's how I like to leave a doctor, basically, like a bit of a nerd going, yay. And just the very first consultant, their phone call, because obviously their phone calls in the pandemic, I was in tears. And I'm not even very much a cry person. Because he kind of was short and he cut me off. You know, I'm obviously very fast talking and chatty, but he basically was just like, let me finish and basically was just really quite rude. And when you're quite tense like that and it's someone you're looking to for, for genuine information and, for, and you get a dynamic which is immediately combative, I found it really upsetting, actually, because I didn't want it to go that way. But I felt like the only way it wasn't going to go that way is if I didn't argue with them. And it's like, I'm not a child, so I am going to argue with you. I'm, I'm not I'm not you know I'm an adult woman who is meant to be having conf- you know, informed consent I'm meant to understand these things and then make an adult decision yeah I mean so the reason I brought up Nigel is because I quite recently that's my stepdad sat into a lot of quite intense medical debates with somebody about a lot of um risk-based things you know they had to have operations I had to decide about chemotherapy then and I feel like the tone of that was so incredibly different to the tone experience with the maybe probably in the end four or five consultants I spoke to so I had a nice spread of consultants and the only way I can describe it is paternalistic I felt like I was being spoken down to even it's not necessarily a man thing you know even by women consultants even ones that maybe at one point I thought had kind of got a bit in with me a bit like I've had a home birth and it's gonna I think the thing I got very very well versed in is trying to assess risk but I feel like the way people are assessing risk when it comes to a pregnant woman because of that second that other life with a baby which I'm not making light of it's obviously a hugely significant thing but it's a it's a joint thing but I feel somehow that seems to make them talk differently 
to me as an adult person. And like, I'm about to do some wild and crazy thing, which I think ironically, all of us aren't going to, because we've all been so conditioned, even if we were maniacs, which we're not, we've, we've, not only are we extremely, you know, there's a lot of nurturing stuff going on, these are pregnant women, but we've all been conditioned as well, like there's no escaping it. So it just seems like a bit of an, oh, an a, 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 you know, a sledgehammer to crack a tiny knife. Like, I don't know if it needs to be going in that heavy against women who are just wanting to discuss risk mm. and things. Wanting to get a fair assessment of the reality of the risks and the benefits that are being yeah. offered. And if you have something like AIMS, I don't know what you think about AIMS. I could tell that AIMS have got like a really, you know, they have, I think, got a strong agenda, which is very female, woman-centred or, you know, but they still seem very research-based. It's all midwives, mm -hmm. isn't it? And like, you know, yeah, so- we, we highly recommend AIMS for getting some- really important. I never rang them, but I mean, I probably should have rang them, but I mean, there is really good art because that's why I helped, because you obviously work with your partner too. So my husband is a little bit more risk averse than me, which is understandable because it's not his body and he's not doing as much reading. So he's got some other shit he needs to do. It's not that he doesn't care, but you know, you're both juggling certain loads of stuff. But so occasionally I could at least present with both what the consultant has said, which I was having to communicate. The, old, the annoying thing was, is that if he wasn't in those meetings, I felt a big burden where I was having to give him a fair assessment of what the consultant said, just to be even-handed, which probably didn't agree with all the time with what I wanted. But I was trying to do that in so even a way. And then my place, my case, so the whole thing was so exhausting. Argue with the consultant, try and explain it all to husband in an even way, then try and make decision all on your own, all on your, completely on your own with all. And then with the kind of risk factors, if you break them down. So IVF, you can say it's a big, big risk factor, but it's, it's a it's tricky one, even my consultant admitted it. It's because you have a big catchment of women that are all, often older, but with the last portion of them older, but all with different pre-existing medical conditions often. So saying that's a risk factor, it is as, a, as an umbrella term, but it's not as you're an individual. You could literally not have that as a risk in a way. The actual IVS in itself is not giving you an extra risk. Weight, again, is a bit debatable, really, how much is that? Age is very tricky. Not to quote another um, podcast on a, pod, on, a, on a thing, but evidence-based birth, I found like a very good episode of that. And I think a lot of it's they're based in Australia. But, you know, talking about maternal age and, and trying to really break down um, what significance that has, because, you know, that became one of the biggest sticking points for me. The fact that I was two years older than before, basically shaved. She said the, the, the one in 200 became an obsessive thing for me. So one in 200 is the risk of um, also the risk of uh, your of scar, scar rupture. So that's one of the first things is VBAC don't want to get too boring about this, but that one is really easily dispelled because the scar rupture as a, as a, as a, as a category covers everything from catastrophic all the way down to I can never say the word it's like dissonance or dis it begins with D and it means literally the scar looking like it is not actually parting in any way but it just seeming under stress so if you've got a risk of one in 200 of, of, of scar rupture within that you then have to find another statistic was how many of those did anyone die did baby or and it's less than the other things like percentile abruption cord prolapse stuff that you don't feel is very risky for you um, babies are far more to die of that than they are of scar rupture so that all gets very confusing and when you're that's the main thing everyone gets so upset about when you're trying to do a VBAC that you would be in danger of scar rupture that you would need continuous monitoring which again then the NHS names points out doesn't actually do anything they tell you to come in early there's a list of names which is brilliant they give you a whole list of things you're meant to do if you're having a VBAC all the opposite of what would give you a successful VBAC which is go in at the first signs of labour so you're in this video you know, like um, be monitored the whole time have everything put in your uh, cannulas put in everything that makes you feel and all of these things like everything on the list I think apart from one there's no evidence any of it so you know the minute you start this dialogue with a consultant I think the reason he cut me off is he said something about continuous monitoring and I tried to say look you know we just just so we don't have to, have to go into that I'm not I'm not really going to be up and he was like let me and he's just really snapping you're like okay well, we've got about 10 minutes on this call 
and I've done my reading and frankly also in the nicest possible way I love the NHS but you're working for me and I'm, you know this uh, this is a service I'm not being rude I was just trying to say to you no we don't have to go into that one I know what I'm thinking of so you but the main one in 200 for me so I'm rambling but um was that apparently with two years older I had rather than a one in 200 chance of stillbirth I had a one in 100 chance and this gets very granular so you're trying to I, the amount of things I was looking at about trying to work out I was picturing everything you know if you were standing in a room and someone was trying to shoot just one of you and there was 200 of you or it's just it's such a hard thing to try and work out because for me it was so crucial because I knew I was going to go over to like 40 plus weeks but she wanted to do everything at 39 I had no chance of spontaneous labor starting I thought you know any time earlier I, I set all the home birth stuff in place I should move to Homerton Hospital for that because even during lockdown luckily for me my timeline worked out that they were still doing home birth one of the nicest things of, of my pregnancy was I did have a couple of in-house things which I would thank them forever for that I would say to anybody planning a home birth your first birth I don't want to over flood the, the, the system but it's just it's just a, a positive thing to do you, you should get this amazing care and then if you want to transfer to hospital you transfer to hospital there's no shame in it I mean it's not like that like it's almost like some sort of weird failure if a home birth transfers to hospital it's like no you were going to go to hospital anyway why don't you give yourself so I find the whole culture of that maybe it's just about resources but so confusing but I had to argue my way into home birth so you know imagine with my list of things mm. they were like you can't come in the birth center so I was like well I think I'm having a home birth anyway and then I'd I'd my wife almost shouting at me basically going you you can't if you know what i mean it's like i'm not a maniac i said to her, i'm not mad i use if i was at home and you said i want you to go in now i'd go in now but i don't see why i can't start at home well, and so they're finally and then this start. start at home yeah. so to have the yeah. option to continue at home if you wanted makes perfect sense rather than no i had to call an ambulance out if everything was going really well i had a doula with me but i suddenly have to call an ambulance out like that doesn't make any sense and you're not going to tell me I can have a water birth and you're going to lie to me a little bit let's be in the, in the nicest possible way you're going to try and tell me that a consultant led room is pretty same as the birth center well it isn't because I've been in one I'm not a child and I know the difference and that's why you have them so again that maybe they don't mean it meanly but that kind of disingenuous thing we all human beings you know that's probably what she felt was a nice thing to say at the time but that could, could cause a lot of resentment later when I kind of wake up and think it really isn't like the, the birth center why did I do that yeah. And I think one thing I did want to mention, because I haven't, I tried to make notes because I ramble too much and it, there's a, kind of quite a lot of stuff, but with the trauma, I'm trying to think about trauma um, with birth, because obviously that's what maybe I'll be thinking about photographing a little bit more. I did some more photography on my second birth that related to that. I actually photographed Bowie being lifted out of my, in my C-section. I did a, a portrait of him being born. It's a terrible oh, picture, wow. but, but the thing is, I follow lots of birth photographers and stuff, and there's some beautiful pictures that I've done, especially in America. They're like, let, and, and women doing it themselves. It's like an amazing, they've done all their settings, they've done it perfectly, and there's this beautiful photo. Mine is a terrible, it's one of the worst photos I've ever taken, but <laughs> I come back to really loving it because it could very much illustrates how completely awful and abysmal I was feeling. So wow. I negotiated, um, so I was going to say something about trauma then. I think I'll just finish that and I'll go back and finish the birth. What I was going to say about trauma was, is that I think one of the things that really plays in to a lot of this um, very, very tense feeling of consultants, midwives and the women, is not just the women's trauma, actually. When I was reading an article, they were talking about the power of the anecdote and how even if you have a lot of statistics that are telling you that a lot of these, and I was a, about a bag of hideous risk factors, you know, and even later on, I had reduced waters. And then you have to go down that wormhole of looking, can you really tell if waters are reduced? Is it really another bad sign? Or is it just something that could indicate a bad sign? So all the time you go down these wormholes of reading. 
and you're constantly butting heads. But one thing I was thinking about these, why the power of the anecdote might be important is because I think when you look at these women's faces, either a female consultant that I had that I really liked or the midwives, it's because I think when you've seen a woman lose a baby, I think they're pretty traumatised by it, if you know what I mean. And I think, unfortunately, that comes maybe is possibly feeding into this. It's just my opinion, but, and I feel like maybe a lot more help for them to deal with trauma because then seeing a woman lose a baby, they're never going to be the same midwife after that. That doesn't actually mean that that risk is reflected on my pregnancy, if you know what I mean, really. Because, of course, I can't imagine what it must be like to see a woman going through loss of a baby. It's horrific. But then again, you know, it's a one in 200 chance that you would die over a whole lifetime in a car accident and seeing someone traumatised by losing someone in a car accident. But obviously not to make it the same thing. I know. But, you know, what I mean, it's like we don't all react in that way. But obviously it's such an intensely emotional environment that I do worry that maybe. And that's why the home birth midwives, I think, are interesting. I'd love to talk to some of them. They've made a very specific choice about how and they must have nerves of steel, clearly. But, you know, I, I do think sometimes some of that might be what's going on here. That once you see a woman you and then you naturally don't ever want a woman to experience that. But then you obviously end up in a culture where we're doing much more. Into, it's agreed that we're doing much more interventions. That we want to be doing whilst our stillbirth rate still isn't exactly where we'd want it either so it doesn't even seem to necessarily be working if you know what i mean so i don't know a bit of me worries that yeah that that, that maybe they need to be dealing with how traumatic that is for, for actual people working in in birth seeing things like that going on and how to they can then go forward supporting women more you know more calmly possibly and they when they're just trying to discuss the various options so my, my consultant, who was lovely, who was a woman of some similar age, who'd had a, a home birth when she was a bit younger. I we went in at about 38 weeks. I'd gone in a couple of times for reduced movements. Again, it wasn't really reduced. I went in because my baby was um, transverse. Uh, so you can't, you can't feel them as much. You genuinely can't. I'd, again, it's one of those tricky things. If you go in too often to be monitored, then someone's like, well, you've had that so many times. You, you're out of that. You're not even in... I don't understand how that's encouraging anyone to check reduced movements. And obviously, if you've gone in and had this period of monitoring and it's seen this, the whole thing, again, I don't understand. I don't know if you, anyway, that I, I find that crazy. Yeah. But I'd gone in, yeah. And then I had to reduce waters. Basically, I finally went in after discussing with my husband at 40. I got to 40 plus five. So they wanted me to go in at 40. I nearly got to a whole new, new week, but I didn't. Not because everything's happening, just because of the reduced waters and quite, and obviously bowing to certain pressures. I don't regret that because it's, Obviously, I've got an alive baby now. Who knows what would have happened? But I went in and I had to make a choice. I wasn't going to have a hormone drip, so I had a dialer pan. I don't know if you've, I had, I'd had it in um, IVF before. It's just a little, like, almost like an inflating tampax, but tiny sticks that go in and dilate your cervix. Um, my waters, wasn't really anything there. The one reason that this was all interesting is that I found one thing really stressful is I've gone in the dialer pan and you can go home. And I'd been home with my previous dialer pan, when I'd had it for IVF, because um, they sometimes do, do dummy transfers. So they want to slightly dilate your cervix and then put a, a little catheter in. So it's not massively dissimilar. And I was told by two consultants I could go home. So I know it's not a big deal, but I was like, I planned what I was doing. I was thinking, right, that's great. I can at least have a really chilled out atmosphere at home to try and make this happen, get this started. And sent Michael home to pick up Ripley from nursery. And then they were like, no, we want you to stay in. And it was about three o'clock. So I was like, well, no, I haven't got anything with me. You know, and I don't, and I was just told that I, I, I didn't need to stay. And they were like, we've got everything you need. We've got some knickers and a toothbrush. And for some reason I found that, that's one of the things that stayed with me more than anything. Two women of my age look at me saying that. And I know it sounds really childish, but I was thinking, you're not staying anywhere with a pair of borrowed knickers and a, and a random toothbrush. I want some stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I'd be a bad person to kick off my labour 
with the bag the bag that I've packed to try and do it in this horrible room which I've agreed to do it in I'm not that it's your fault but anyway I find that really irritating but um and so I did end up staying in because obviously at that point then everyone's ramped it up and got all funny about it and so if anything did happen and then uh, the last thing I would say is again even in this situation they try and say to you you can have six hours you can have six hours after the dilapan then we're going to do it. and then you have to go to them is that what is it called again yeah, I think that's a really yeah, good thing that yeah so and it's true it's like no, why don't we do nothing? Now, my journey still ended in a C-section, but I had to do that. I had a trail of consultants come in four times and I had to each time, after the second time, it was like, right, so now we have three, we have we do have two options. It's either we do the C-section now or we do the hormone drug and I had to go. Michael said he was actually really proud of at this point. I said, no, we've got three options. We can do nothing. Because at this point, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm being monitored constantly. Okay, my waters are broken, but you can go 48 hours or longer. We all know that really. I, did, I don't always do loads of vaginal exams because that would probably give me the infection that I don't want. You know I mean? Like, why don't we just leave me sitting here? Is it that you don't want me to take up this room? Let's just be blunt. I don't know. Like, But again, the final thing that got me is what got me Ripley too, is that Ripley had a really big meconium in my first pregnancy after all of those hours and all of that induction. She'd done a giant, you know, she had done a big poo in my first pregnancy. So I was familiar with that. This time I did a thing which I wanted to share. What is it called? It's um, a name of exercises you bring to bring on it's called the cycle, the something, the mill circuit. That I found really good. I did that around the hospital. Yeah. yeah, and I got my, because even though I was not, not dilating at all, I did get labour starting in the most horrible environment, crabbing up and down stairs in that hospital. I got some, some contractions going. And then a lot more water actually came. So I think, do you have something of waters at the back, don't you? So I was actually, so I was getting a bit, and then it was a little tiny bit yellow. Little, and I was, you know, I was all up for it. I was showing them it, but then they're like, it's, it's meconia, you know, definitely got to go now. That's it. And again, you have to say, you stop a minute. If I was a 29 year old woman who was just in labor now and you'd seen that, would that mean we were going down for an emergency section? No, like, oh no. So I was like, I don't know why everything always seems to add on. And I understand I was a ball of risk factors, but I was like, you're just looking for a reason. I don't know. And in the end, for me, it was a pandemic issue almost. There were some timings with how long. Michael could stay after the birth whether I would have the same consultant that even though he wasn't he wasn't like I wasn't ecstatic about him he was a nice guy but at that point you're clutching onto anything he was going to change shift so in the end I I did I and it was my choice I decided to go down for a section but I was I was absolutely in bits if I'm honest I was really it's one of those ugly cries one of those childish you know that, again verging on trauma because I did not want the, the c-section I do not like c-sections as I said a lot of people like them and it's fine I did not want that. So I was for that quite a lot. And, you know, there's nothing, wasn't anything that terrible. It's a C-section, you go down, it's an operation, you don't feel anything. You know, I, and both babies are really good APGAR. You know, Ripley had a, a spectacular APGAR. You know, they can't get, like, the only one they never get is that they can't come out pink because they're not, do you know what I mean? So both my, I'm not saying that means I didn't need any of this, but it's not like any of the babies did have, so who knows? But I think the trauma would mostly be, I would say, from the combative atmosphere all the way through and the absolute grinding power it would have took I just don't know I'm a very stubborn person I'm not trying to shuffle about that but I'm quite an argumentative person I don't know how any normal person who's not got that in them would be able to advocate for themselves for any of that frankly especially during the pandemic when you're on your own so it's not like I've not got this axe to grind about anything in particular other than maybe the the overall tone of it all I think is just depleting I think rather than empowering is all I'd say but I don't know if that's just my experience it's an experience that is uniquely yours but it is very mirrored in a lot of other women's stories, especially through the pandemic. I think there's a lot yeah. of that a lot of women can go, yep, I recognise that, and yeah, I relate to that. And also, in my photo project, there was a bit 
I was like kind of compile it as an essay of, of mainly like kind of like six shots that was kind of telling the story of a lot of my pregnancies and you know kind of like dealing with a certain degree of trauma and stuff and going right into it you know because mine obviously had quite a tight time I was like I had to go right back into a pregnancy about a year afterwards because I was a bit you know for me trying to process all of that trauma and trying to talk about doing that on your own during that pandemic obviously it's completely complicated but so that was it I was going to say but sometimes you if you're getting into this culture of a lot of people discussing their birth issues you'll get a little bit um sometimes people talking I know it's a bit of a dodgy area not dodgy area but it's, it's a kind of needs to be explored more but maybe things like certain midwives or doctors doing sweeps on women that maybe they haven't been very clear that they've done it you know a little bit like sometimes there's some issues around consent and I think that got even hyped up it got ramped up even more in um in lockdown because you had this sense I know it's a very unique situation and I have a lot of sympathy for all care providers trying to work out what they were doing you know during that but you there was a situation that I think occurred not specifically for me but I knew I didn't want a load of vaginal exams which always I don't know almost seems to be like a bit of a, again a hippie thing to say like you're meant to immediately con comply to anything but as soon as you get a bit into reading this you're thinking yeah this probably would slow down my labor and I'm not sure how much they're really telling anyone about stuff and they do hurt quite a lot but obviously they were saying that you couldn't have your partner in until you were in active labor which held some people in a basically a quite I don't know how else to put it, but like a quite clinical assault situation where if they weren't allowing someone to put some fingers inside them, they weren't getting their partner. Mm. I mean, that is something that I think is going to need a lot of discussing in the future. And I don't know how many people it happened to. I, I anecdotally know it happened to a lot of people. I don't know if we compile it, what the, the, the jury will be out on that. But that seems like an incredibly dodgy situation that we might have got ourselves into during that. And again, I don't think women would have known that they can even say no to vaginal exams. A lot of people don't, a lot of people don't really understand all of the choices and rights that they have. In general, I think that many people think that the doctors know best. Yeah. Birth isn't a medical event, but it's become so medicalized that we yeah. feel like that's the norm. It's yeah. normal to have a midwife come in and stick her fingers inside you and see how far dilated you are. Yeah. Do you actually, do women actually understand that knowing that number has no bearing, no, no. significance no. of the amount of time it's going to take you to grow up? No. I don't think I mean, well, the, the consultant I liked that I went to regularly, I would have asked to have specifically, the one that was the, the lady one, there was a, a horrible, awkward conversation we had when she wanted to do a sweep and I said no. Um, and she wanted to do a vaginal exam. And again, I, I wasn't really up for it because there was no point in her doing it because I knew I wasn't going to do anything till past 40. I definitely negotiated with my husband so that it was irrelevant. And then when we finally did do one because she said I had reduced waters, which is seen her scan, which again, I wish I'd maybe gone away and come back. But there was time in between this. But anyway, the basic point is that when she did finally do one and said that I was um, like, you know, whatever, the thing where you're not very, it's all very high up, it's all very tight, it's all very hard. It's all, it's all the negative things you think. I was basically going to her, well, that could change at any point, couldn't it? And she absolutely said, no, no, it takes two weeks for that process to happen. Now, again, I know some people are just chit-chatting away, you know, they're just, they just, they may want to say the thing they think will help, but obviously I had to scuttle out and I had to have a good Google. And now obviously I could, you can go from absolutely rock hard nothing to almost like fully in labour in like hours. I mean, it's obviously completely physically possible. Now, I don't know what she thought she was saying or whether she thought she was, I just don't know what the, the mindset is to be saying that to me when it's just not true. You know, and there's no point in getting really angry about this, but it's, it's not true. And I, the amount of things I've been told that weren't true were really, it was actually quite worrying. And the amount of young consultants I got where you'd ask a statistic and they'd say, well, your risk of still, the classic almost like your risk of stillbirth doubles. And then if you've done the reading, you know that it starts, especially younger, it's like doubling of the most minuscule number imaginable. Mm -hmm. But even then, if you try and ask someone a little bit more about it, 
sometimes I used to get a bit harrowed because they wouldn't have like almost like a cheat sheet. Like sometimes you'd feel this was a young consultant that was doing their rotation in obstetrics, basically. And I felt like if you aren't in there a lot, someone should leave you a little bit of paper with some of the basic numbers on it, some of the basic, most current studies. Because if you then ask a question, they go, mm, I don't know. You're like, well, we've reached a bit of an impasse here because you're telling me not to Google it. And you're the person I'm supposed to ask. But you haven't even, and I'm not saying that, you know, in this ideal world, and they've got a lot going on. But if someone didn't put a little bit of paper there mm-hmm. with just some of these numbers on that we could discuss, I don't know where you, where you think this conversation is going to go, other than I'm just meant to agree with you. I, I think that most women do just agree because they don't know that they don't have to. And I, I think we the see one, a lot. This is what I was thinking. Like I was saying, like all these IVF women, I'm in these IVF Facebook groups, which I know isn't very scientific, but I think I said to you earlier that there's a thread at the moment that's 20, 25 women all being induced, all being offered sweeps at, from 37 weeks, which is crazy. It's not even NHS guidelines as far as I'm aware. And all being induced at 38, yeah, for various reasons. Sometimes it's literally just IVF or age. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it is a bit, if you say you get a bit pokey, you go, why? Obviously, occasionally there is a real reason, but it's all of them. But, you know, if you then fast forward to a VBAC group a bit later, which can only be a few years later, and some of those are IVF women, there were women in there just fuming because they uh, they have done their reading. And I think that 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 kind of backlash afterwards could be avoided. I think that makes you feel a lot more traumatised about stuff if you are not fully informed. Yeah. It's really being fully informed is so very important and it's not that you might you may have even still made the same choices but to be fully informed on those choices Mm. is necessary I always feel like it's a bit contrary too like I didn't feel like anyone gave me any risks about a c-section you know like if you go and have an operation on your toe there's usually someone going to and there's like a one in a million chance that you would die from your toe operation you know as I said I sat through with Nigel about all of his like having his esophagus removed you have all these and for whatever reason, they were so keen on me doing the C-section. No one would ever really tell me the risks. Obviously, the assumption, the implication was that obviously it was um, it was much less risky. But obviously, the things that happened to me, which was a big secondary bleed and a big, you know, and, and, a, and, a, and a initial blood, a big loss, and which was either definitely either tra- like um, caused by a retained product, which is when you have a bit of percentage left over, or an infection. These are all things that are associated with the C-section. And I feel like what you have in, I don't know how it works, but I feel like there's a bit of paper somewhere that said, Alexis went in, had an induction, this is my first baby, had an emergency C-section, baby and mum were fine. And I feel like that then bit of paper doesn't get filled in a bit later to go, oh, by the way, though, she then had a secondary bleed, an infection, and actually had some complications in her second pregnancy. Because I don't think I was joining that up. So they're always just like, well, that means that that one works brilliantly. Because that's not the same, I don't know, it seems to end there. And also not getting a copy of your own notes. That's the other thing I don't understand. There's a whole folder with all your notes in when you're there. And then someone takes it away at the end. And then if you want to get it, you have to wait months to try and get hold of your own notes. Unless, unless you took a picture on your phone a bit. And then I had my second C-section, the doctor consultant that I'd got you know, a bit of a rapport with, I liked. When he was down there, I heard him go, oh, which is fine. You know, I've got other reasons because of humor. I was like, what? And he was like, you couldn't have had this baby um, naturally anyway. It's good that you've done this. You've got this giant band of scar tissue. I've had to go up and over. In fact, when you if you ever have it, you probably shouldn't be pregnant again. But if you ever did do it again, you need to tell the surgeon that they need to go up and over. And I'm laying there, obviously, you know, having a C-section. So I come out and I spend the next few days. I mean, the post-op, in, uh, the pandemic post-op was, was the first night with the baby on my own without Michael was one of the worst nights of my life, I have to be honest. It was absolutely, you just had literally no help. Don't want to be mean, but I mean, maybe I should have asked more, but anyway, it's rank. Um, but I had to keep asking. I was saying, can I can I have some sort of debrief from what that surgeon was talking about? Because I may have a further pregnancy. And I don't think that's really the time that someone should be telling me this. Mm-hmm. And I had to request three times to have a birth reflections. I was told I was going to be given the notes when I left. They weren't in there. 
And I had to drag myself a couple of months ago back in there, which is really when I had a three month old baby. Really, it's not about the inconvenience. I was not really over the whole experience yet, but I dragged myself in to have that debrief. Even though I couldn't have think of anything I wanted to do less than have another argument with the consultant. But a bit of me was like, I need to do this now because otherwise I'm never going to find out what any of that meant. And, even, and then I had the same awkward conversation with a woman who was just being really condescending. And, and I was like, I just don't understand. Like, because I don't even know if that starter could affect me putting in another egg. So that's silly, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm spending money doing IVF. Maybe a big band of scar tissue on my uterus might be something where I'm throwing stuff on salted earth. Or maybe I need to know about this. I don't know. So the whole, the whole thing, again, I, the, the other thing I would get on a big soapbox about is everyone should be given their notes. Mm. At the point when they're discharged, their proper full notes of their pregnancy. Because you've got women being asked four years later, what, what happens in your C-section? Like you're meant to remember. And you're yeah. like, I don't, I don't know, because I was laying on a table, really, really, you know, exhausted. <laughs> Do you not um do you not remember signing anything for the first for the C-section? I don't, but I'm sure I did. I'm sure they followed all protocols. I mean, I know some people haven't had signed, you know, and I was fine about things like, you know, vitamin K injections and you know, I'd gone beyond thinking I was gonna end up with delayed clamping or whatever. Like I'd I'd given up on all those things are really significant though. And if you want them, you know, I know this these things don't happen a lot of the time and it's terrible. But I mean, just the basic, honestly, I'm just that basic. I would just like a proper set of notes. Again, I think it's being treated like children. Being treated like children, be not given my only medical information, but then being asked in a following pregnancy. I don't mean you've been in for a second pregnancy. The first thing they want to do is talk through what happened in your first. And I didn't even know if that balloon had been used or how much blood I'd really lost. Did I really remember? But this is all going to dictate what they're going to allow me. No, they're not going to allow me. But what for my next one? So again, that whole thing is just like, oh, I'm, I'm not being talked to normally. I'm not being told, but then I'm being, I'm the only one being asked. And then I was like, I can't find your notes. Do you remember? I'm not, not being mean. I love the NHS, but I'm just like this. This isn't really all functioning that well in this sense. For sure. Wow. That that is. Oh, yeah, I have been. That's it. But I did realize when I wrote it down, I was like, "There's a bit too much stuff here." No, no. I think I think it's uh, you know you've been through a lot. Yeah. That is a lot to go through, and you just got quite compressed period of time. I think is the only reason. If you spread that out a bit, it wouldn't seem. I don't know. I re- thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I'm Tell sorry that it's a bit garbled. Yeah. But, you know, that's why it's, it's, it's not something I was trying to say at the time to a lot of consultants. I was saying this isn't something I particularly wanted to gain all this information on, if I'm honest. I didn't even really want all of this knowledge, if you know what I mean, if this is knowledge. But I don't know. You, you do gain all of this as you go along. And then I don't know where the forum is to speak about it. So I think it's really good having places like this where someone is just going to do a big, you know, got verbal dump of it all and because that's the kind of thing you're seeking out if you are that kind of person when you're going through pregnancies and even if it is a little bit you know all over the place and some of this it just I don't know where the place is to be placing this and it, it needs somewhere to be placed and this whole discussion needs to be opened up a lot more broadly and I would and that's why I don't know if this is going to happen but you know after the pandemic when this all loosened up I would like to broaden minds doing portraits of some people and hearing their stories because I don't know how else to document these things other than and I don't know if that's uh, women are going to really want to because it's such an intensely private and difficult thing to do but I feel I feel quite compelled as I'm sure you do with what you're doing to to I don't know to keep record of this a, yeah. a bit more and to try and well, open this up because I, I think there are real issues with it that need addressing in this day and age 100% and I think that it's wonderful what you're offering to do with your photography and allowing people to tell their stories and it's really important for us here to hear these stories and to give you a platform to speak your truth and have that experience shared 
Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks.